This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. My name is Claire Clark. I'm your host on the network. And today we are speaking to Alexander Still, who is the San Paolo Professor of International Journalism at the Columbia School of Journalism and the author of the new book, The Sullivanians, Sex, Psychotherapy, and the Wildlife of an American Commune, which was recently published by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux and um, is is now out in the world where you can pick up your own copy. Alexander, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I wonder if you could begin our interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. Well, I, um, <clears throat> uh, I was an undergraduate at Yale and majored in English, and I was all in English literature and thought I wanted to write fiction. Um, but when I decided that wasn't going to be my future, I shifted into journalism um, because I, I gradually realized that there were forms of literary journalism that did a lot of the things that fiction did that I really loved, um, uh, narrative technique and ways of telling stories, <clears throat> uh, but that used the material of everyday life um, to allow you to do that, that that was a more viable uh, avenue for me. So I switched over and became a journalist. And um, I've done that now for um, 35 years. Um, <clears throat> I, um, I was particularly interested in uh, models of literary journalism, you know, some of the books that I read that made an impression on me when I was figuring out my future were things like uh, Norman Mailer's Executioner's Song, some of the essays of V.S. Naipaul, um, um, and things of that kind. There's a great tradition in the United States of narrative nonfiction that um, I think I was able to draw on. 
Well, uh, wonderful. So the Sullivanians is sort of written in that um, vein. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about, this is not your first book. You have published several before. So tell us how you came to this topic. Yeah. So a lot of my previous work, I went and lived in Italy um, in the early 1980s and became obsessed with Italian politics and and have done three books that were um, rooted in Italy. Uh, but <clears throat> I've also lived on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, uh, more or less, for the last, um, um, I guess it would be almost 30 years. And I teach at Columbia University, <clears throat> which is also in that um, neighborhood. And um, I happened to find out by chance in talking to some friends who knew people that had been in this very unusual group, people they'd become quite close to. Um, who had a very unusual past, had been part of a kind of secret utopian community in the Upper West Side that had been uh, founded uh, by and around a psychoanalytic institute that uh, had existed for 35 years and formed a kind of urban commune in the same neighborhood just down the street, really, from where I lived. And that uh, many of the people that they got to know through this these people they knew, people who sat around their Thanksgiving table, had all been members of this group. And I was just enormously intrigued that I could have been living in this neighborhood for uh, decades and not known that there was a kind of um, utopian experiment that had taken place, sort of hidden in plain sight um, within blocks of where I lived. Um, a few blocks from where I live, there was a building that this group owned, and in 1986, um, a, uh, a woman who was a member of the group kidnapped her own child um, <clears throat> because her therapist had, forbid her to, uh, for, had forbidden her to see uh, her own daughter, and that was uh, one of the things that kind of um, was the beginning of the end of this group. So I thought to myself, how strange that I could have been living in this area and not known all this was happening. So that just intrigued me enormously. Um, it wouldn't <clears throat> be particularly connected to other things that I wrote about, but one of the nice things about journalism is that it's just a kind of license to be curious and to pursue um, stories that interest you. And so this just uh, began to consume me, and the, and the further I got into it, um, the more it, it interested me. I didn't know that I was necessarily going to write a book about this when I began, <clears throat> but some stories that you pursue exhaust themselves um, within a few weeks and you feel you know enough about them that you don't need to uh, pursue them beyond uh, an article. Other things just sort of grow in interest as you um, begin to dig into them. And this one uh, got deeper and deeper and more complicated as I as I got into it. Well, I've talked to a lot of historians on this podcast, but I think you're actually the first journalist and journalism professor who I've spoken to. And I wondered if you could um, say a little bit more about your research and writing process for this book. Um, <clears throat> well, the first step was this group was quite secretive, so I needed to figure out who had been in it. And um, so that took a little bit of doing, and I found... Um, a PhD dissertation that had been written by um, someone who'd been in the group who uh, got a PhD in sociology and written about it. <clears throat> and that contained um, 
some names in it that, and interestingly, one was a name that I recognized of somebody actually was a friend of mine who I knew in a very different context. And uh, I asked her if she would sit down for an interview with me. Um, I found the, the person who'd written this dissertation was still living in the New York area, and I contacted her. And so journalists tend to, um, you know, I think as interviews tend to be a very important part of our process. Um, so I would say a combination of working from documents when you can, but um, I think I, like many journalists, tend to be very interested in live subjects and, and um, interviewing um, the actual sources. So I began interviewing people, and then each person I would interview, I would try to you know, get them to suggest other people who would be good interview subjects for me uh, to talk to. And so um, the the list grew. Then I found that there were, um, uh, I went hunting down in the uh, courthouse in um, New York City because I suspected there were some lawsuits that um, the group had generated. And that, in turn, gave me a lot more material. There were people who had submitted depositions who were mentioned in litigation. Um, I was able to track um, some of those people down. And the story just kind of grew um, in depth and complexity and in the numbers of people I was interviewing. Um, Then... You know, very sort of lucky and and fortuitous things happened, like a woman whom I didn't know about contacted me out of the blue and said, I hear you're working on this. Uh, I have my diaries from my time in therapy and a lot of other information from the group. Would you like to talk with me? I said, sure. And I flew down to North Carolina where she lived and she had, for example, membership lists from different periods of the group's life. And that was invaluable because then I had names of everyone who had been, uh, you know, actually paid dues when this group became a kind of former formal membership group. And I was then able to track down many more people than um, I might have otherwise done. Um, and so after a couple of years of this, I probably interviewed 60 or 70 um, different people and um and uh, track down as much documentary evidence as I was able to do as well. Um, you know, they were disciplinary. I discovered that four of the therapists had lost their licenses. Um, the I should explain, this group has as its nucleus this psychoanalytic institute, uh, and then they encourage their patients to live together in communal fashion. And uh, <clears throat> when the whole group began to fall apart in the late 80s, early 90s, Four of the different therapists lost their licenses, and I was able to get uh, a lot of the documentation uh, in those um, disciplinary hearings and um, um, the judgments that were um, given out by the Office of Professional Offices of the State of New York. So that was very helpful as well. Well, it's richly researched, and it's a fascinating story. So let's let's get into the story a little bit. Um, what was the Sullivan Institute? So the Sullivan Institute was um, technically founded in 1957, but I think was already operating as an independent institute uh, probably at least four or five years before that. 
it takes its name and inspiration from a famous American psychiatrist named Harry Stack Sullivan, who, however, it should be stressed, was dead uh, before this group actually got going. He died in 1949. Uh, but the two people that founded the Sullivan Institute were a married couple named Jane Pierce and Saul Newton. And Jane Pierce was a medical doctor and a trained psychotherapist who had in fact trained with Harry Stack Sullivan and other of his colleagues at something called the William Allenson White Institute, which is a quite well-known and reputed uh, psychoanalytic institute, which still exists in New York and uh, was founded in the, I think, 1943 by Sullivan and um, close colleagues of his uh, that included Frieda Fromm Reichman, Eric Fromm, and a woman named Clara Thompson. So Jane Pierce got her training with them, and um, Saul Newton, whom she ended up marrying, <clears throat> worked in a clerical position at this institute in the bursar's office, but evidently had a certain amount of exposure to their approach to psychotherapy. What Sullivan is known for, and the William Allenson White Institute is known for is something called interpersonal psychotherapy. Um, and the general idea is that um, whereas someone like Freud <clears throat> focused very heavily on the early years of a patient's life, you know, what they referred to as the family romance relationship of the patient to his parents and um, the inner conflicts of the patient, you know, id, ego, the Oedipus complex, and those sorts of things. Sullivan believed that um, people instead were, continued to grow into adulthood, that they were influenced by and <clears throat> had opportunities for change into adulthood, that one needed to look at all the relationships in a person's life and not just uh, those early uh, childhood relationships. Um, Sullivan believed that people developed in stages um, that changed from, you know, parallel play in early life to um, pre-adolescent relationships that he referred to as chumship, which were um, relations that um, children sometimes have with uh, close close friends of the same sex before they get into adolescence and um, sexual relationships with people of the opposite sex. Um, and <clears throat> Sullivan believed that sometimes people missed out on these uh, opportunities for development, but those things could be um, uh, recouped at later times. Sullivan was well known for having worked with uh, patients with schizophrenia uh, in the 1920s and early 30s. Um, and had his patients live together in residential settings um, that were same-sex and um, achieved quite positive results with those patients. And so what, the, what Jane Pierce and, and Saul Newton took from that was that, well, why shouldn't other people who are not people suffering from schizophrenia benefit from the same kind of Jumpship, the same kind of life of fellowship, living with each other. Um, uh, they also took the conclusion that because Sullivan believed that people grew from exposure to other people, that uh, by definition, the family was a limiting and even suffocating institution 
that worked against growth and therefore the people needed to get away from their family of origin. They believed that uh, monogamous marriage was similarly <clears throat> limiting and suffocating. And so they began to advise their patients to uh, break off ties with their um, families of origin and to experiment sexually um, maintain multiple sexual relationships with different people. And then during the 1960s, they began to advise their clients to live together in group apartments, um, single-sex apartments on the Upper West Side of Manhattan at a time in which there was a lot of inexpensive real estate in New York, which was going through a period of decline and depopulation. Um, and so they began living together, creating a kind of community. So that's the kind of uh, origin of it. Um, another thing I should mention that I think ends up being important in terms of the development of this community was that um, one of the early uh, patients uh, of, this of this group of psychotherapists was the uh, art critic Clement Greenberg, who was a very famous uh, uh, art critic at the time and had enormous influence in the art world. And so one of the people he got into therapy uh, in 1956 was Jackson Pollock. Um, and Pollock was followed by a whole raft of important abstract artists that became patients of this group in the 1950s and 1960s. Um, People like the uh, folk singer Judy Collins was a patient in the 1960s and into the 1970s. So the group acquired a kind of hip avant-garde cachet in the bohemian, um, you know, artistic and and cultural world uh, because of these patients who were, um, uh, you know, had a lot of kind of <clears throat> intellectual and artistic glamour connected to them and. Um, the group was very focused on the idea of people's creative and, and individual development. And um, so uh, they, you know, I think a lot of people in that, in that cultural milieu liked the idea that they could be free to live as they saw fit, have sex with multiple partners if they felt like it, um, and focus on their individual development, that uh, they didn't need to spend too much time taking care of their kids because, in fact, they would be bad for their kids and their kids would be better off somewhere else uh, being taken care of by babysitters or in boarding school. And so that kind of fit um, the needs of a certain population of people at the time. Well, the, the story you tell about the Sullivanians is really, it's, it's kind of a rise and fall story and it begins in Saul Newton and Jane Pierce's townhouse on West 77th Street. And then it sort of culminates with the creation of a political theater company called The Fourth Wall. I wonder if you could kind of give, give us an overview of what is, what, what are the rise and fall of the Sullivanians? I think... You know, as you indicated, it starts out as a kind of maverick form of therapy, which was um, in some ways not that out of tune with what was happening in the culture at the time. Um, it really blossoms in the 1960s, which is the era of, you know, wide adoption of the birth control pill, um, 60s counterculture, um, and... Um, 
political protest, civil rights movement, anti-war protest. And they're very much in the middle of that. And there's a great deal of focus on the individual growth of the patient um, that the, the general sense that they began with was the idea that um, in past eras, um, people were raised in order to be good, productive citizens for the benefit of society and the family. And now we have the opportunity to actually raise people uh, for their, you know, for the for their own individual gratification and happiness. And so we needed they, they needed to kind of turn things around. Um, you know, before the invention of the birth control pill, um, you know, people had to be careful about who they slept with because, you know, you would. Um, jeopardize the paternity of um, someone's children, uh, you would get pregnant, um, you would disgrace your family. What if we suddenly were freed from all of the societal structures that were uh, built up around um, the, the need to protect the family and suddenly you were free to rewrite the script of human arrangements um, in a way that made people happy. So that kind of um, fit with the culture of that period. Um, but one of the things that um, happened was that as this developed into a community, um, the kind of therapy that they were conducting was, um, you know, to put it sort of euphemistically, was what's known as highly directive. In other words, the therapist actually not just listening to a patient and asking questions, but actually telling the patient what he or she should do. And um, so patients were initially, um, you know, told to experiment sexually, told to break off ties with their family, told to explore group living. Um, and this then became increasingly codified and rigid with the passage of time. And I think the therapists, um, you know, um, became increasingly, uh, you know, on kind of a, a power trip um, as they realized they had um, so much power. And then one of the things that happened in the early to mid-70s, which I think is a kind of important turning point, is because you had all these creative people in this group, people with artistic uh, interest, with musical interest, with um, interest in writing and doing theater, uh, they formed lots of... Um, um, artistic groups, rock bands, a theater group. And there was a theater group that they called the Fourth Wall, which began to operate independently and was very successful. And they rented a theater space and they put on plays. And people like the novelist Richard Price wrote skits for this um, theater group. And um, I think the leadership of the group realized, wow, this is an incredible vehicle for actually organizing this group. And, but we need to take it over. So what began as a kind of bottom-up group in which creativity was, uh, you know, sort of bubbling up from the membership upwards, suddenly was taken over by the leadership and made this into very much of a top-down kind of organization. So in 1977, <clears throat> Saul Newton and um, Joan Harvey, who was probably the uh, uh, the second most powerful therapist in this group, uh, she became uh, 
she became Saul Newton's fifth wife after he uh, dumped uh, Jane Pierce. And um, <clears throat> so they took over the theater, and uh, because the theater required a certain amount of money and upkeep, uh, they began um, exacting dues from the membership. And it was very clear that if you wanted to be in Sullivanian therapy and you wanted to be in one of these group apartments and part of this community, you needed to be part of the fourth wall. So essentially about 250 people <clears throat> became dues-paying members. They, um, they also demanded assessments, financial assessments from people in order to they bought a, a theater on the Lower East Side of Manhattan where they could perform their plays. They bought a, um, a, a former sort of hotel motel up in the Catskills, which could accommodate about 250 people where they would uh, conduct rehearsals and hang out during the summer and have fun. Um, so it became a much more structured uh, group that uh, required money and membership and dues. You were supposed to dedicate a certain amount of time to group activities. Even if you weren't acting or performing in one of the plays, you were going to be asked to, you know, design the program, hand out tickets, um, do lighting, work on costumes, um, any number of things that um, <clears throat> the group required. And as the group uh, developed, um, it, I think, got increasingly insular and increasingly um, sort of paranoid and us against them. In 1979, there was a uh, nuclear accident at the um, nuclear plant three, of Three Mile Island, which is in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, about 200 miles from New York. And the members of the leadership of the group were convinced that the damage at the plant was much greater than the government was actually admitting that they everybody needed to leave New York. And so everyone, the whole group, about 250 people, uh, evacuated from New York and ended up in Orlando, Florida for about 10 days. And this was a kind of moment of truth, if you want, or untruth, um, in which um, the group um, became much more, you know, sort of insular and paranoid. Uh, the three-mile accident didn't end up, um, in fact, uh, causing any deaths or long-term um, radiation problems, certainly not in New York. Uh, but the group then created structures like um, they required all members to listen to two different radio stations 24 hours a day because they were they thought there might be a nuclear accident somewhere. Uh, members of the group were asked to uh, conduct uh, radiation monitoring uh, um, groups, teams that would run around, would, would drive around uh, several different nuclear plants in the northeast of Manhattan, uh, of the United States, to monitor radiation levels. Um, you weren't allowed to eat food that was produced in the northeast of the United States. All sorts of weird rules began kind of entering into the group's practices. Um, and this got... Um, more pronounced with the AIDS epidemic of the early 1980s when there really was a public health emergency, but some of the measures that the group um, uh, adopted were, um, you know, some of them were perfectly reasonable, like um, using condoms um, during sex, 
but they they began, for example, to forbid uh, group members from eating in in restaurants in New York City because the waiters might be gay and carrying AIDS. Um, that uh, they weren't allowed to eat food that wasn't prepared by fellow group members and things like that that had no real public health uh, rationale to them, but that served to make the group more and more insular, more and de- more and more dependent on other group members and on the leadership, and more and more cut off from the society as a whole. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. And then what really led to its downfall was this kidnapping case. Yes. Well, I think that one of the things that was happening in the in the mid-1980s is that you had people who had gotten into the group in the late 60s and early 70s in their um, early 20s, let's say, who by the mid-1980s were people in their upper 30s. And if they were, if they were female, um, they began to realize that my opportunity for having a child is getting um, more and more narrow. And if I want to have a child, it has to be now. That drove some people out of the group because um, they were, they couldn't quite imagine having a group within the the group within the um, structure of the group, and others who did um, were you know faced all kinds of problems like the the woman Maris Papo, who uh, kidnapped her own child, uh, had her first child at age forty one, and um, three months into her. Um, her child's life, she was told to stop breastfeeding and uh, to go back to work full time, and uh, and then not allowed to see her child for a period of six months. And as you can imagine, she became increasingly distraught and and um, um, you know on the edge of a real breakdown where she felt I'm either going to kill myself or I'm going to do something drastic. She consulted a lawyer who uh, said, "Look." The way you're going to get your child back is to literally take her. Um, as her mother, you have a right to your child, and it will not be kidnapping. And so you need to actually hire a couple bodyguards. And so she literally staked out the building where she and her child were living. She was on one floor. The babysitter was on another floor. He was looking after the child. And the father of the child was on another floor entirely. So they waited in the morning for the a babysitter to take the child out for a morning walk. And they, uh, while the two bodyguards immobilized the babysitter, the mother took her child, and they uh, drove off into a hiding place. The father then uh, sued for custody, and that kind of blew things open. And by this time, there was a certain amount of dissent within the group, people who were increasingly uneasy about the... Um, increasingly controlling nature of the therapy and uh, people who had children in the group. Uh, Two other parents who were no longer in the group who had defected uh, sued for custody of their children. So the group was suddenly faced with multiple lawsuits and um, legal expenses and bad publicity. The mother who kidnapped her child went to the press and gave various interviews and all that was um, 
um, you know, very kind of demoralizing for the group and uh, the group became increasingly split. Um, so that, and then by this point in the late 80s, Saul Newton was by now becoming, uh, showing signs of dementia and losing his grip both, um, you know, uh, on a, you know, cognitive level and also in terms of his control of the group and the whole thing began to kind of uh, fall apart. And what became of the children who were raised in the Sullivanian community? So that's a really important chapter and something that I'm very, very happy that I was able to report and document. The story of the children, which uh, even in the few things that had been written about the group had not been written about at all, um, is to me an enormously important um, part of the story. In the 1950s and 60s, and even into the early 70s, um, the strategy was to advise patients who had children to send their kids away to boarding school as soon as possible, um, because the whole the whole kind of ideological paradigm of therapy was um, families are bad, parents are bad for their kids, kids are bad for their parents. Um, the parental relationship is characterized by envy and possessiveness and control and all things that are bad for people's growth and development. So you need to get the kid out of there as soon as possible. It'll be better for them. It'll be better for you. And so um, in the 50s and 60s, um, uh, many patients send their kids away to boarding school at incredibly young ages, seven, five, and even in one case that I documented, age three. And institutions in this country that would take children of that age are not places you would really want to have a child. And so a lot of those kids suffered years of real neglect, and in some cases, um, abuse. Um, and um, not only were they sent away to boarding school, but they were limited almost entirely from seeing their parents during their periods of vacation and uh, from school. So they were uh, sent away to summer camp, um, you know, double sessions of summer camp. During Christmas vacation, their parents generally told them to find schoolmates who would allow them to come home with them rather than to return to New York and see their own parents. So many of those kids had minimal, minimal contact with their parents for 10 or 15 years and um, suffered enormous emotional scars uh, from that experience. Then in um, 1976, I believe it was, um, um, one of the parents who'd sent her child at age five away to a boarding school lost custody of her child uh, because the father was not in the group and, and succeeded in winning custody because she had custody but never saw her child, so the judge ruled against her. So after that, they stopped um, um, they stopped sending kids away to boarding school, but they started doing increasingly weird things with the kids in order to, again, uh, break up the family. So um, already by this point in the early 70s, they began advising women who wanted to have children that they should uh, conceive collectively. In other words, 
that a woman should have sex with multiple people during her ovulation period so that, again, you wouldn't know who the father was, uh, you wouldn't develop the kind of possessive relationship of the child belongs to the bit to the father. <clears throat> and um, in many cases after that, um, the mother would be greatly limited in the time that um, she would have with the, with the child. Babysitters would be the primary caretaker. Um, and then in some cases, they would reassign children to other parents, um, either legally by reassigning custody um, or de facto by, uh, by limiting so much the time that a child would have with their parent that they spent far more time with other adult members of the group. Um, sometimes people were, kids were raised in, um, you know, group apartments um, inhabited by adults who were not their parent. Um, so all of that made for very complicated uh, early life for many of these kids. Some of them, um, you know, had okay times of it. Those who, uh, I mean, the kids who were sent away, I think none of them uh, would say that, um, you know, it was a positive experience. They all suffered. The kids who were raised in the group after they stopped sending kids away had very different kinds of experience, but, um, I think it's fair to say it was very confusing. Um, and there was also kind of a hierarchy among the kids. Both Saul Newton and uh, Joan Harvey had 10 children each between them. And those kids were, you know, sort of like little prince princelings within this community, whereas the children of people that didn't have the kind of power and status within the group often had much harder experiences and uh, suffered more. Uh, but one of the things that's been really interesting and that happened during the course of my own research and reporting is that um, in the last five years or so, uh, a lot of the people who were kids in this group, people who are now in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, all began doing inexpensive DNA tests like 23andMe and trying to figure out you know, what the story with their paternity was and making some really startling discoveries, discovering that the person they grew up thinking was their father was not their biological parent, uh, discovering that some acquaintance or stranger was in fact their um, bio dad, uh, discovering that they had uh, half siblings that they didn't know about. Sometimes these were exciting and happy discoveries and sometimes they were very disturbing ones. Um, you know, one of my important interview subjects discovered that he was the father of three different children that he didn't know about, um, that he discovered while he and I were conducting our interviews with one another. So that made for an extremely interesting um, interview process of, you know, that so many things were actually happening during the course of the time of my own research. What what would you, what would you say is the legacy of the Sullivanians now in in twenty twenty three when this this book is being published? Well, I think one of the things that's quite interesting is that um, this group, in some sense, um, represented a series of aspirations, uh, a desire for uh, greater community, uh, a desire for uh, you know, to not be limited by the particular strictures that society places on us, um, 
they were also, we haven't talked about it, but they were uh, political radicals who, uh, you know, were Marxist and uh, part of their philosophy was uh, based on the idea that the family was a kind of pillar of capitalist society and that uh, there was too much loneliness, loneliness and alienation in our society and that communal living and communal life was an answer to all of that. <clears throat> and um, interestingly, some of those questions that they were asking um, are ones that are actually quite pertinent. You now have a kind of, you know, in this country, there's been a sort of rise of interest in polyamory, a rise of interest in democratic socialism, um, and as one of my uh, interview subjects put it, we asked all the right questions and got all the wrong answers. Um, so it's interesting to think about uh, where this group went wrong and what there is of value in uh, this experience. I should say that uh, while I think in some ways this is kind of a cautionary tale, a little bit like a kind of modern time animal farm story, um, there are also things about it that are worth uh, looking at with genuine curiosity and respect. Somebody who wrote to me after my book came out, who'd been in the group for a few years and then gotten kicked out, uh, said to me, on the one hand, I feel incredibly lucky that I got kicked out of the group and didn't remain longer. But at the same time, the group gave me one thing that has served me for the rest of my life, which was that they told, they taught me that you can actually make friends as a deliberate act, that friendship isn't something that just happens spontaneously, you know, without any kind of deliberate deliberation to it, that you can really make a point of building friendship into your life and making that happen. And that that's something that has um, served him in the rest of his life. So I think that emphasis on, and many of the people that I interviewed, I think appeared to have a lot of, you know, a lot of community and friendship in their life, even after the group had um, ceased to exist as a, as an organized structure. So I think there are things in that that are um, in a time in which um, uh, the United States is coming to terms with um a kind of crisis of loneliness and lack of community and erosion of social capital, that there are aspects of this, even though I think these people went about it in the wrong way, um, that there, there are parts of this experience that I think are really interesting to reflect on. Well, Alexander, that brings us to our traditional final question here on the New Books Network, and that is, um, what are you working on next? You know, that's a good question and one I, I don't have even the slightest answer to. Um, the one thing that I found um, in my, I've now written six books, and um, if there's a common denominator to those projects, it is that it's really, really hard to write a book and you have to really be in love with your subject and be really passionate about it if you're going to um, make it work and have it be a book that um, actually matters and matters to you and matters to the people that read it. And so you have to really, you know, have a kind of, um, uh, you know, falling in love moment with the subject matter. And that, unfortunately, I think 
doesn't always happen so easily. In this case, I kind of stumbled onto it. And so I'm hoping that as I kind of, um, you know, recover from this book project and begin to poke around and uh, look for other things to write about, that um, I will find one that I feel as strongly about it as I did on this one. But um, um, I don't find it easy to, um, sometimes it takes years to kind of reach that point where uh, you have something that you're ready, you're ready to kind of dedicate the amount of time and energy that a book like this takes. Well, I can certainly relate to that. And I'm sure many of our listeners can as well. Thank you very much, Alexander Still. Um, his new book is The Sullivanians. Um, and um, check it out. Thanks very much.